This is Linus Sangren, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, it's Ilya here uh, for the Cinematography Podcast, uh, flying solo today. Unfortunately, Ben Rock, eaten by a werewolf. No, really, Ben, famously, who loves werewolves, is just really sick, so uh, I get the uh, job of uh, flying solo, and uh, I'm sure at some point I'll probably be sick, and he'll have to do this uh, for me. Uh, Anyway, first up on the show today is Lena Sangren, Incredibly talented DP. He's been on the show a couple of times before. He's got a new movie called Saltburn, which is the new movie from Emerald Fennell. And you should definitely check it out. It's in theaters now. Okay, so moving right along, this is going to be a little bit shorter show than usual because I don't have anyone to to banter with, but uh, I am going to try and hit all the big points. Uh, Close focus for close focus today. And now, close focus. Netflix has released their viewership data. There's going to be a link uh, in the show notes, either below this video or over at the website camnoir.com. The Netflix viewership data is really interesting, and uh, I would encourage everyone to take a peek at it because we're finally getting some transparency in a organization that has traditionally not given us really much in the way of data to find out how shows are doing. And surprisingly, the number one series by watch hours In fact, the number one program on Netflix for the last six months is The Night Agent. You might be asking, what's The Night Agent? I certainly did. I didn't see it. But it has been viewed like 812 million hours of watch time. Uh, It doesn't have a ton of big stars in it. In fact, actually, what's particularly interesting is as you start to go through the hierarchy of what's been popular on Netflix for the last six months, The biggest shows, the biggest series, not a lot of like huge name stars. It's not like, you know, big A-list Hollywood celebrities. Uh, They're series and it's a mixture of series, mostly from the U.S., but a few from South Korea. And that is uh, is pretty fascinating to me, certainly as uh, someone who's getting into this data. In fact, the first series that I watched anything of wasn't even in the, the top three or four. That It was number five, which was Wednesday. I only saw about half of Wednesday. I haven't finished it. I want to go back and get to it. But in the hierarchy, number 18 was the first series I'd seen the entirety of, which was Beef. Beef season one was the number 18th most popular show. And to give an idea of the difference between, you know, number 18 and number one, number 18 had only been viewed, you know, Beef had been viewed about 200 million hours of watch time. So roughly a quarter of the watch time of The Night Agent. Of course, a lot of this comes from the fact that, uh, Netflix has to be more transparent now due to the agreements with uh, the writers and the actors and the new contract. But uh, it's very refreshing to see them being so forthcoming to put this out there and to put it out there for everyone. They could have made it you know, more difficult and it could have had to like filter out in, in different ways, but they put this on their website and anyone can download it. So if you're curious to see who's been watching what, I'm going to encourage you to go download this file. And again, the links are at camnoir.com and also in the show notes if you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, Okay, so let's get to the interview with Lena Sangren. 
the Cinematography Podcast interview. Well, first of all, thank you for coming back on the show. We, we had you on here for your James Bond movie, and then last year we, we had you on here for Babylon. And it would be hard to think of a movie less like those two movies than kind of the intimate character portrait that Saltburn is. But holy crap, I mean, like, what an engaging, engrossing movie. I read that that the director's idea was that it was basically a vampire movie without vampires. And there's something yeah. so uh, gothic and evocative about it. And I, I feel like I have to start with the hackiest question, but I have to start here. Your use of kind of an uncommon aspect ratio. Uh, I immediately, like, I was like, is the theater projecting this wrong? It looks like four by three, but sure enough, it's four by three or, you know, or one, three, three to one. What prompts you to, uh, to go into that aspect ratio? I've honestly wondered for many years why more people didn't use that aspect ratio. I feel like we all tried to get away from it when TVs became 16 by nine, but what, what brought you into that for this movie? Right. Um, it's kind of a more painterly composition in, in terms of how you think of things. And it, it wasn't like we knew from the start it was going to be one three three. I think uh, it, that came with a couple of discussions, and I feel like every time on every movie, hopefully the language you create is just very unique to this particular film. And uh, same with other films I've done, I feel like I always try to start like with a blank page and just talk a lot about the film in different ways than visually. Like yeah. Talk to the director about words they can come up with that relates to the film in in any kind of way, like vampire film, like there's claustrophobia, there's um, voyeurism, there's, um, you know, close ups on, on sweats and body liquids. Yeah. And at the same time, we're in a in a castle like house where the family has been portrayed in, in paintings for for hundreds of years. Um, and they're hanging on the wall still. So I came from that a little bit in the early discussions where I felt like how fun wouldn't it be if if it felt a bit like we portrayed them kind of like how they've been portrayed over the years. Just this family is like shot the same way again, like as if we were paintings from the 1800s or whatever. Emerald came from the idea that you look into a, a dollhouse and you peek in and it's voyeuristic. Mm. And both those themes, the painterly and the voyeuristic kind of got me more into thinking 133 than 240. And also with the house having tall ceilings, it was kind of that way. But then when we talked about it being a vampiristic film and which type of paintings would relate to this story, the vampiristic theme then i think of not 80s vampire movies but i think of like nosferatu and like silent movies mm -hmm. in the sort of stark german expressionistic like pre-film noir like black and white really hard contrasts of silhouettes and and that would be fun in an because she wanted it expressive so all these things right creates a language and i feel like the german expressionism was 133 the paintings on the walls are kind of more square so I feel like that all felt related with in the painting world, like the Baroque painters, right? Like Caravaggio and there's one woman, Gentileschi, who painted like amazing, grotesque scenes that you don't want to watch, but because they were so beautifully lit in a dramatic light, you kind of want to watch it because it's just mesmerizing image. And that, you know, it's like that kind of idea of the, and that was another theme she had was the beauty and the ugliness. So everything sort of came together to that 
aspect ratio and to the style of lighting that is more in the vein of sort of Caravaggio for these scenes. But then you go outside and you have the hot summer days and it was more of that sort of Polaroid uh, type of photography, also square, right? So there was many things actually that made it uh, one three three more than anything else. In but I think of it like it makes me think of old timey movies because you know televisions were basically that because that's what movies were at the time. If you go back and watch Casablanca or Citizen Kane, whatever, like all of those movies are one three three, and then movies were trying to give a wider image, which led to you know Cinemascope and you know Cinerama. All keep the, them watching movies in the cinema. Yeah. 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 It's and what's interesting, and actually, I, like when I found out that you shot it on film, the salt burn on film, also, like, uh, you know, 133 and anamorphic are the only ones that use the full frame. Like you're not, you're not cropping in on the frame. So did you use the full, the full 35 millimeter frame? Are we, are exactly. what we, yeah. Yeah. We couldn't shoot on 65 uh, budget wise. So I thought like, what if we use those 1.3 times squeeze lenses from Vantage, uh, the Hawks, in 133, then it becomes 185 or 178 for TV and 185 for cinema. Mm -hmm. But we use the full negative, but in 1.3 squeeze. So when you look through the viewfinder and you see the whole image, it's so, um, it's really nice, actually. It's it's just a nice feeling. And same with 133 now uh, in silent. But it's, it's like cool. when you're, when you're making a film, like the kinds of films that you've been making, how many of, are they going to film print with, are they doing a lot of prints? Or is it mostly DCP delivery at this uh, point? No, it's mostly DCP. Uh, up till now, I've done film prints on, on every film, but it sometimes it used to be obviously many, right? Like yeah. maybe it was thousands of prints. Now it's like a few prints for archival yeah. situations. And but to me, shooting on film gives me a different negative from. I mean, any format you choose, I feel like whatever format you choose, it's gonna give you different negatives to yeah. work with, right? So whether I shoot on a red camera or an Alexa, it's going to look slightly different. And then with film, it's just you have so many variables you could manipulate the film, like choosing between 16, 35, 65 is one. The other is just like how you expose the film, because if you expose digital too bright, right, it just clips. But if you expose a film, 10 stops over or five stops over it's not clipping it's just like another look you know yeah so yeah. more flexibility plus i feel like the film sees colors that just film sees in a way well that was what i was going to ask you like at this point in your career you know you've shot digitally you've shot on film do you kind of look at an individual project and say this feels more like film because like looking at this movie i could sort of tell even though it was being digitally projected it looked like it had been shot on film i yeah. it's sometimes it can be very hard to tell because, you know, when yeah. you have a really skilled person shooting it, grading it, all that stuff, sometimes even after the grade, it can be so, you know, be, uh, for sure. Yeah. But, but it looked filmy to me. And maybe it's because we're in kind of these like cavernous big rooms in what I read was a real estate. It's not, it's not a movie set. It's a real old house. Like something felt very analog and real about it. But like when you're looking at a project, do you kind of go like, Actually, this is perfect for the red for the following reasons, or this is perfect for... Totally, I would, no. yeah. No, totally. Uh, it just happens so, like, for example, on an example of that is when we did 100 for Journey mm -hmm. uh, with Lasse Hallstrom, which was about food. It was about romanticizing about sort of Southern France 
environment in uh, in in a combination with like where there's a conflict between two families but it's a it's sort of a family movie right yeah but we wanted to feel rich and lush and the production design was amazing like really lots of hand-blown glass in the sets pieces they built and it was like very authentic and real and colorful and stuff when you see a lot of greenery a lot of trees and and rich forests or whatever and lakes and you get the shades of colors in in the greens and in the blues that is captured in just a much more contrasted distinct way on film so that mm-hmm. when you get negative it's already there you don't need to add color which benefited the feeling of richness right and then when he goes to uh, paris in this film and he sort of emotionally loses his soul a little bit mm-hmm. if you say and leaves the family behind to pursue his career. We wanted it to feel like more sterile and more sort of clean. So we went, we shot that on digital and with the same lenses, everything, same DI, same printer lots. And it ob- it looks very different if you look at it. And his skin tone is different. His skin tone is much more sort of smooth. And you could like that, you know, and, and want to go with that. And then I would go with that. So I like that better. So in that case, for the film storytelling, I thought it was a really beneficial thing to do. And not many people will notice so much. They will feel like these images look sharp and clean and more stylized in a way. Or not stylized, but like cleaner, because also the set decoration was cleaner. But it, it was useful to sort of change. And in First Man, we changed from 16 to 35 to IMAX for also dramatic reasons. And you see a difference. It's like different, even though it all goes digital. So... I think it's more that, to me, it's more that, that I want to have the ability to choose whatever format feels like it tells the story the best way. And oftentimes for me, it is, it's it's usually one of the film formats that I prefer still, but um, I, I'm totally open to anything all the time. It just happens so that I, I end up, I do extensive camera tests in for the film. So we, we test all kinds of things. So. Well, and, and you said like you were influenced by painters. Uh, would you say Baroque? What, what was the... Yeah, like the Baroque painters, yeah. the, that era. So how does that like inform your, your onset process? Like, are you just kind of analyzing the paintings? Are you are you saying like the scene feels like this one painting? Or are you kind of generalizing saying like, oh, they tend to use one light source with bounce or how, mm. however they do it and kind of coming up with a lighting scheme for your work that that kind of reflects that? Yeah, good question. You know, what I I like is actually the less specific I am, the better. But Mm. you want to be specific enough for everyone to be on the same page with the language so that everyone could get inspired to come with ideas. That is our language. Because I feel like I love the collaboration. I love that the gaffer feels like he knows what movie we're making. And it's not because I like it this way. It's because we decided this is the language of the film. So Mm. let's try to work in this little uh, tunnel we created now in in the style. And then uh, he may have seen something or think of something or come with them the idea like, let's, what if we use an 18K through here and the backlight comes through that window, you know, it would be nice. So that way we all could be, when we're scouting, walking around the set with the 133 in mind because it's decided, thinking like a painter from that time would help me enough to like, say like, oh, shouldn't we be over here so we can see the full uh, surrounding and put the sofa more like over here and put the put the characters in it this way so that we can see their faces, you know? And that way we compose this shot. 
and then that fits also with the lights because then the, all the lights comes from maybe the 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 fireplace in their faces and they all get lit like uh, an oil painting from the baroque era like yeah. it all comes together like naturally because you have a goal there's everything is possible in the world but when you create that language it becomes a smaller thing and it's more natural and easy for everyone to come with ideas but but to create that language what i do is i definitely find images of paintings, I find photography, and then I like to create mood boards that are much more light specific than other departments usually do. So production designers office always do, art department always does mood boards, but they're usually character driven or location driven. And there could be a mix of day and night and interior exterior. So it could be a mix of light moods in it because they focus more on the character of the house or the character of the location. And mine would be like completely location free. Like it's like not, my mood boards are only lights, but it's the completeness of them, the combination of them. Usually it's like nine images in one paper Mm -hmm. or like in one image. And I spend time in pre-production once I know what language we should have and what mood we should have that, for example, you know, Saltburn, I would have done, I did two, I think, mood boards for interior Saltburn night because there was a lot of it, like um, a lot of need for it, I thought. So I did two mood boards and then I did for exterior sunny day, one mood board. I did for exterior more gloomy day, like when it was raining or foggy Mm. uh, as a one mood board. And I did like uh, an interior day, which was a lo- two interior days as well, which was a lot of the Caravaggios because they usually had a lot of those uh, paint uh, sort of daylight coming through a window, right? Like yeah, you have yeah. the when he sits, they're sitting having a meeting in a cafe or something and it's a yellow wall and the light comes in from the side hard. And then I would, would take a lot of those images in a mood board are usually art paintings or some of them are paintings. And th- then it's like, I'm just researching uh, online, looking for things. Could be I look for films. It could be from a movie clip. Could be from just Googling things like Googling close-up eye. And then I take the eye and then I, because I want the voyeuristic shot where you see an eye through a gap, for example, Mm. I wanted that eye. So I found an eye like that. And then I eventually create a color grade in Photoshop on all of the images to match up to one sort of palette of one mood so therefore you may want another palette on another mood board and those are just for communicating i want people to look at that mood board as one image like from a distance looking at the whole mm-hmm. bind like that is what i want to try to say like as a whole this is the feel and then if you look at every single image, you may be too detail-minded, you know, in in how it references to to our film. I feel like it's more like, oh, that's the mood. Okay, it's a lot of silhouette things going on, but not in every image. Some are frontlit, so but the combination of them becomes like one image. So so those we used, and um, that way people got inspired to think of different uh, compositions to to communicate with director. And when the director gets a sense of, yeah, I was going to ask like, who sees that? Do you, I mean, like, I assume you, if you showed it to the director and she said, no, it's not what we're going for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. No, I was gonna say like, yeah, you'd go back and, and, and kind of make another one. But like, once you have one that you and the director agree on, do you like show that to the production design? Do you show that to your gaffer? Yeah. Yeah. Do the actors see that stuff? Like, is it something that, 
Yeah, um, everyone can see it. And we usually put it together like a, a lookbook where production design has this, their lookbook and I have sort of these mood boards. And, and it's definitely something that uh, is meant to be confirming what we talked about. So hopefully most of the time these work, the, the images work as mood boards because they're created once I have already understood uh, you know, the director's vision. I, I, I try to think of all the inspiration to be very uh, broad. When we've talked, for example, on Saltburn about Hitchcock, we talked about Hitchcock as Hitchcock, and she had her ideas of Hitchcock. I had my ideas of Hitchcock. We never watched a movie together that was a Hitchcock movie that inspired for this film. Mm-hmm. Because it's enough for me to think Hitchcock for suspense and for voyeurism and when she thinks of it, she may think different, but it doesn't matter because we're in the same part of the world. And it's better to be rough about it, I think, and not specific because otherwise it's it, it you're too locked into something. Yeah, you're not doing a cover song. You're not you're not copying Hitchcock. You're you're yeah. you're capturing and- the feeling of Hitchcock, which is uh slip slipperier, but then of course it's gonna be informed by by her taste, your taste, you know, and and what you think, you know, like you want it to be your film, not yeah. But you know. but also it's like that. It's like if it's too specific, uh, it's not only like that, that it may copy something, but it's like that you're restricted and to think outside of that. Like then, oh, so how do we do now? Because this doesn't feel like Hitchcock. Well, it's okay because it looks like five percent Hitchcock, and that yeah, was yeah. The point of it. Of course, in films, sometimes I feel like directors like to show you a specific scene in a film to understand the director better because the director has really a strong connection to that film, but it doesn't always need to translate literally to what we're doing, but like very strongly to the the soul of it. I remember we did Joy, me and David Russell, and we watched like uh, Paper Moon and we watched like oh, wow. a, a Wonderful Life, right? Oh, yeah great american cinema one older than the other right but black and white and our film isn't black and white but it was in the vein of that type of cinema that we did joy like we wanted to be inspired by it and it we had it with us in our hearts kind of thing you know it's like that i think which is uh it always that that is a great way to if you watch movies i think to inspire but not to say like i want it to look like seven and then you shoot shoot it that way you know as much i always as you- i always feel like people take the wrong lessons from stuff like that because it's like if you want to take a lesson from seven for instance like think about the process darius kanji went through creating a look and then think how would you do a process like that for your film and that's it it's not hey let's yeah let's do silver retention blah 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 i mean it's good to know about those tools but it's more about what kind of thinking created this very out-of-the-box for-its-time idea. Exactly. And that's why that film is unique and amazing looking. And it is obviously a lot of thought process going on and discussions in pre-production that yeah. made them do that decision and, and lit it that way, shot it uh, uh, that way and had that type of rain and the sound effects and everything is just perfected for that particular film. And nothing later has been able to shoot it looking sort of similar to that way better, I don't think. It's just that is what that is. And exactly like you said, it's the think of it instead, like how did they come to that and how is that process and apply that yeah. to your And then you will get your unique film with a similar quality, you know. And I think as well, like films 
shouldn't necessarily look pretty. Films should look appropriate for what the story they're telling. Like, look at like Kislovsky's Decalogue, which is, mm-hmm. I think, beautiful, but it's very sort of mundane, gray, very fitting for the story it's telling. And it has its beauty for sure, but it's also like not typically pretty, right? And I think that's important too to think of like maybe the film shouldn't always have like great looking images, but if it fits the storytelling, then it's great too, of course. Like you want people to uh, appreciate the film that way too, but it's about just communicating the emotions of the of the film. That's the pre one, and that could be ugly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's some great, some great movies that do kind of create that vibe. Uh, we only have like five more minutes, and I don't want to take too much more of your time. But I feel like I have to ask you one question, and that's about the hedge maze and the fact that we see kind of a model of the hedge maze, and that obviously immediately, make, as soon as I see a hedge maze in a movie, uh, I'm probably not alone in thinking of The Shining. You use it in a very different way, but also you have. <laughs> A very real minotaur statue in the hedge maze. Yes. Can you can you t- when you when you're doing something like that that you know is going to immediately conjure in most people's minds like this very iconic, very specific thing, and and in fact you're introducing it in the same way. We see it as a model, and then we see it as the real thing later. What's your approach to that? Are you saying like let's lean into the fact that people understand the the language of hedge maze? Or are you like, how do we do it in a way that doesn't feel at all like The Shining? Or do you not care about The Shining and just tell your story and who, Honestly, who gives a card? Yeah. Honestly, we didn't think of it. Again, I feel like we tried to think of our you know, process as a blank page. And the reason there's a maze there has more to do with sort of the metaphor, right? I mean, there's lots of symbols in this film. And like in, the, I guess, in The Shining too, the maze is symbolic. But here the symbolism uh, lies also in that the fact like that his journey to Saltburn is like it's kind of an impossible thing to become the king of this house or the the, yeah. the, the this house just like a maze uh, that's one thing right but there's in in the great maze uh, there's always like a cheating route and this maze <laughs> had a cheating route and he takes the cheating route so there's more sort of like symbolic things going on like that and i think the manito is a symbol for him uh for oliver and and i remember emerald was even like giving all um very directions to remind him to in scenes later on like to have his pose similar to like the manito to well he like, literally like has like horns on his head and he has horns eventually yeah exactly yeah, so cool so he, he slowly develops into that character so honestly we haven't talked about we talked about many films, but we didn't talk about The Shining between us. Um, uh, maybe she did with the production designer, but I mean, I'm sure she loves that film and she loves uh, lots of old cinema. And she thinks like she's sort of a, a Hitchcock of our time, I think, in the way she thinks about suspense, that she always wants to create suspense in the films. Uh, in every every scene is sort of the goal is to create suspense. So I, I kind of feel like when you walk in a maze, that's when you feel like, Reminiscence of The Shining too. Just think of, of Jack Nicholson with an axe in in a. <laughs> but if you ground yourself in your own script, it it of course happens so that a lot of stories are similar by nature because the structure of what you're telling, and then it could perhaps also be that you that th- certain things looks very much like something else, and that's why it's good to not try to get too specific in your inspiration, but be more broad because then you hopefully just 
create images and create scenes that are appropriate for this film. And hopefully it's not too too much like other films, unless you want to make it not to something. And then if it's grounded in the script, so it makes sense, then I think uh, for me, at least it feels like then you're just honoring uh, the, the greatest possible storytelling at the moment of the film. Like, okay, and here we're cutting to a wide side shot. And why is it not the close up? And then if you did that decision deliberately and you have a reason for it, then I feel... I feel good, you know, I, I, even if that also may be looking like from another film or something. I think there's just so many, um, if you have a maze, I mean, what is it that you, how do you present it without thinking of the most iconic maze in, 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 in I mean, if it would have been snowing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that would have. As well, then it would have been more hard. But I feel like, I mean, then there is other scenes I feel like that, I was just like, already when I read it, I felt like I was amazed how it was described so well in the script visually. Um, certain scenes were described very well visually that you totally got the images already as a re- as a reader because she writes so uh, visually when she describes scenes. But um, you just got to be uh, honest to your own uh, sort of decision in the best way, sort of try to tell the story, I think. Well, cool. We're, uh, I would love to keep talking to you about this, but I know we're out of time and we're on we're on a tight schedule. Uh, yeah. But I, I think Saltburn is amazing. Like it blew me away. I had no idea. I had I, I intentionally try and block out, you know, the movies when I'm going to talk to someone, so I'm I can be surprised when I walk in. And it was full of surprises. So well done. So yeah. such such a gorgeous piece of work. Uh, so I appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to us. So it's in theaters right now. Uh, we want to encourage anyone listening to us to go check it out. Yes, go to the cinema. Yeah, see it's it in bad. the theater. I keep yeah. telling people, go. It's, yeah. it's so much better to see these things on the big screen. No, totally. But sit close, I think. You should sit pretty close. It's nice. <laughs> it's, it's very intimate. Well, uh, uh, thank you so much for making time. And uh, yeah, I, I, I look sure. forward to whatever we're going to talk about next year. <laughs> oh, always great to talk to you, Ben. Thank you. All right, so that was Lena Sangren. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to have you as always. In our truncated version of this episode, since I'm doing it all myself, I'm going to move on to my short end, and my short end is actually... And now, short ends. It is a short comedy video that you can watch on Instagram. Again, the link will be down below this video or uh, in the show notes over at camnoir.com. But it is called People Who Film Weddings. And it's from uh, a comedian named uh, Joey Thompson. And uh, Joey uh, worked with another gentleman named uh, Sean Russell Herman to put this together. And it's very funny. And it plays upon the uh, bugaboo I have actually about uh, people giving themselves fancier job titles than what their job actually is. And it's it's one that I've mentioned before and certainly brought up uh, wedding filmmakers as opposed to wedding videographers. Wedding videographer has been the term for a very long time. Wedding filmmaker has just sort of come into the lexicon maybe in the last 10 years. And I think there's a bunch of pretense that comes along with uh, saying that you're a wedding filmmaker versus a wedding videographer because wedding videographer was perfectly descriptive, but uh, there was a movement that happened a few years back where people said, hey, 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 we're no longer videographers. We're now filmmakers and ignoring the fact that, uh, you know, being a wedding filmmaker, a wedding cinematographer is co-opting terms that don't necessarily uh, relate to exactly what is that that you're doing for a living. 
I don't necessarily think that this is bad in principle because uh, it's someone trying to separate themselves from, you know, uh, what they consider a generic sort of term that lumps everyone into a relatively low quality space. But at the same time, there is nothing wrong with being a videographer. In fact, videographer is not a derogatory term. It's a term that certain people have taken to feel negative about and wanted to uh, give themselves more, you know, raise themselves up in their, you know, ability, I think, to to charge for what it is that they're doing. So really trying to make more money from the same sort of work. I have a little bit of an objection to that. And I think that everyone just needs to actually be descriptive with their jobs. It doesn't, it's not helpful to tell people that you're doing something else, especially it's like people don't go out and pay admission to watch a wedding film. That's not a thing. It is a thing that will get watched a few times by, you know, maybe the, uh, the the bride and groom or their family. And that's kind of it. And it's not the same. You know, if there was a real market for wedding films, you'd see them on streaming services. You'd have a channel which was nothing but watching people's wedding videos. So um, anyway, it's a funny video. You should watch it. The links are the links are in all the places. Check it out. That's pretty much going to do it for this episode. So uh, thank you for bearing with me flying solo here trying to get this done. Uh, Let's thank some people. Let's thank uh, Alana Cody, our incredible producer. Let's thank Ben Katz, our editor who put the show together. And let's thank Kays Alatrachi, who uh, composed all the music you heard for this episode. Uh, You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.